Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Ask a Scientist UTK podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about a new topic relating to astrophysics called gravitational waves. Here joining me today is Scott Satinover. Pleasure to be here. So, Scott, tell us a little bit about uh, what you do here at UT and uh, where your research focus is. So I'm a second-year PhD student in an interdisciplinary PhD program here at UT called the Bresen Center. I work primarily at ORNL, but my focus is on devices known as microbial fuel cells. We basically take trash and we turn it into electricity. Um, but I'm also just a general science nerd, and because of that, what I like more than anything is reaching out to the public and talking about science. And in March of last year, I started a column called the Ask a Scientist column in the Daily Beacon. And this has since grown into a bunch of different things, including this very podcast that we're on right now. So I'm looking forward to this. I'm so happy to be here. And this is awesome. Dreams do come true, I guess, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, now, one thing that I definitely wanted to point out was just uh, what you're researching in isn't exactly the same topic. Not as, exactly. Yeah. No. So how did you get involved with uh, just being interested in gravitational waves? Well, I've always been kind of a space dork. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think as far as I can remember, I've always liked plants and stars, going to planetariums. I mean, I was born and raised in Chicago, and they have this incredible planetarium in that city called the Fisk Planetarium. And if you ever get a chance to go see it, go check it out. It's amazing. And since then, just even as a kid, astrophysics and the cosmos, cosmology, origins of the universe, all that stuff has just been fascinating to me. So who better than to write a column (laughs) on this from a person who's not necessarily an astrophysicist, but a guy who likes physics. Um, And I think that hopefully, if you've read the column, um, I've conceptualized those ideas in a way that makes sense that's not crazy. Because believe me, this stuff can get crazy. The farther down the rabbit hole you go, um, the more insane the math gets. And it's very challenging even for someone like me. I can only imagine it'd be difficult for someone who doesn't necessarily have a scientific background. So I'd like to condense that stuff into the the juicy details, the stuff that we all want to hear about and hopefully it did that but we'll talk more about that (laughs) in the upcoming uh, portions of this podcast right yes definitely so with that let's just dive right into some of the questions that the uh, column address but also something that our readers would like to know so what exactly are gravitational waves so gravitational waves are basically in a, a nutshell ripples in space itself we're not talking about changes in how matter necessarily, but all of space, everything, from there being no matter in it to there being some. The space literally contracts and expands, and this happens when big cosmological events occur. And what I mean by that is you need a lot of force in order to make a gravitational wave. It's not just something that's kind of small and kind of there. You need a big amount of it, and even then it's a small amount of gravitational wave. What we're talking about in terms of big events are on the orders of black holes, galaxies, and stars. So that's really what we mean here. Um, For the normal person, you know, this is just so far-fetched, right? I mean, we're talking about you hear sound and light waves are on the order of nanometers, and gravitational waves can be even smaller than that in a lot of instances. So what we're talking about here is something very small but is very substantial in all of our universe. These big gravitational waves propagating out hundreds of millions of light years across the galaxy. But in essence, they are just these ripples in space-time. So I mentioned how they happen with big celestial events, but really what we're talking about is something along the lines of 
a large loss in energy. So a perfect example is you have two big celestial bodies, maybe a black hole or a planet or a star, and they're orbiting each other asymmetrically. They get closer and closer and closer to each other. That behavior will emit gravitational waves. Um, maybe two stars smack into each other. I don't know if I can clap in front of the microphone <laughs> or not, but if I could, I would. They smack into each other, and that also emits, a, in addition to a ton of energy, it also emits gravitational waves. Um, and in all those cases, we've been curious about detecting them because this idea is not necessarily new. Right? It's actually been old. Einstein predicted this in general relativity. He has this set of equations that I won't dive into the details of it because, in all fairness, it's, it's crazy and you could spend years talking about field equations. But his equations predicted these gravitational waves in 1916. And since then, no one's really been able to prove that these were a thing until just recently. And just recently, we found gravitational waves. So in essence, we sort of proved Einstein's general relativity by doing that. And that's really kind of amazing. Yeah, that is. That is really awesome. Yeah. Um, so another thing I wanted to ask was, in the article you mentioned um, something about cosmic microwave background and gravitational waves being a different kind of measurement. Sure. So can you explain how these two d things are different? So in an essence, when you talk about cosmic microwave background and gravitational waves, you can condense this down to something that I think hits us at our core philosophically. And this is what makes this so interesting, maybe not necessarily just for scientists who geek out about this all the time, but possibly for people that are just interested in philosophy and the origins of the universe. When we talk about the Big Bang, the first key that we have for the Big Bang is something called the cosmic microwave background. And what that is is basically background radiation that was emitted from the Big Bang, but only exists after everything was cool enough to condense. Before the cosmic microwave background happened, everything was so hot, it was just bouncing into itself. Think of it like a pool table with like 40 million balls on it. You can't get one ball in any mm -hmm. of the pockets. But let's say you blow that pool table up tenfold, hundredfold, thousandfold. Eventually, you're going to have some room on that pool table to get stuff moving around. And that's pretty much what the cosmic microwave background is. This radiation is emitted and is now unimpeded and just kept going forever, just forever, until it gets to us, and mm -hmm. we can detect this. And it was actually kind of an accident how they detected this stuff. So before the cosmic microwave background occurred, um, we don't really know what was going on. We just sort of ballparked the age of the universe at that point um, using some cosmological theory, but we didn't have any proof or measurements of how old this stuff was. We just knew how old the cosmological microwave background was because we have the models to prove it and we can measure that. Mm -hmm. But the age of the universe before that point and what was going on there, we don't have any measurements for until, theoretically at least, we have this gravitational wave background. So the gravitational wave background is a hypothetical idea. It's not real, but if gravitational waves exist in big explosions and cosmological events, then maybe the Big Bang caused a big old gravitational wave. And maybe, possibly, we might be able to determine how big that is. And if we can, maybe we can figure out how old the universe is and what was going on in that very early time in the universe. And that, I think, is one of the biggest discoveries and importances of this uh, gravitational waves. It's just that we can, we might be able to do that now. Before, we didn't even think these things could be detected at all. Mm -hmm. And now we have a measurement for them, and now we can figure this out. 
it just opens up so many doors and so many possibilities for how we can figure out the universe. And man, people are just really excited about it. Yeah. There's, there's Nobel prizes flying left and right. <laughs> people are detecting it and this stuff. They're dumping money in this thing. This is this is a really really important discovery. Actually, Lee Readinger here at the University of Tennessee, he's he's in the Department of Physics and he's actually a department head. He said that this could be potentially the biggest discovery in the 21st century. So I don't know if he's just kidding us or if he's just being you know hyperbolic but for me and for a lot of other space dorks out there this is pretty important stuff and even philosophically gets to that core of the essence like how are we here and maybe yeah. we can get close to that answer to that question yeah it's just unbelievable this really starts to blur the line between what science is and what theology yeah, is almost exactly yeah. like the origins of the universe we're we're, we're peeling back layers baby mm-hmm. the onion is getting unwrapped <laughs> and we just found a new tool to do it i say new though because you know we, we didn't even think we could detect this for a while and it's totally different than all of our other measurements if you talk about astronomers what they typically measure is light or uh, electromagnetic radiation, the cosmic microwave background, right? That's electromagnetic radiation. That's typically what they detect, and they detect other things too. But, you know, within that scope, that's what they're usually looking for is signatures of light and radiation. And now we have this new tool that gives us an additional pair of – it's almost like putting ears on, you know, a robot, for instance, that couldn't ever hear before. You're basically mm-hmm. like, oh, man, there's so much more information here. What can we do with all this? Mm-hmm. And that's another reason why they're excited. Um just seeing things in a different perspective. Like, what happens when two neutron stars smack into each other? Do they, what's their gravitational wave look like? And actually, just last year in 2017, did they figure that out? They had two neutron stars. They collided. Uh, two detectors of gravitational waves picked up on it. And then an optical detector called Virgo, which is in Europe. And I can't remember where exactly it is, but it was in Europe. And they both triangulated the source of the gravitational waves and where the light signature was, and they happened within precision. So they knew exactly, okay, this explosion, this thing that we just registered is creating those gravitational waves. Theory confirmed. It's traveling at the speed of light. This is unbelievable. Holy crap. And there's, like, press releases out there, and LIGO's going nuts, man. Like, it's hard not to be enthusiastic about this stuff. Yeah. That is, that is really awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so you did mention that uh, the way they found this out was just by colli- colliding two neutron stars yeah. together. So can you describe briefly what neutron stars are? So neutron stars are good candidates for gravitational waves, much like black holes are, because they're really dense. In mm-hmm. order to make a gravitational wave, you have to have something that's very dense. And in essence, it's just a star that's really dense. Mm-hmm. Um, if you use our sun as a comparison, maybe... Uh, a neutron star could be a tenth of the size of our sun and have mm-hmm. the same mass. So it's just as massive, and that means that if it moves around in the universe or it interacts with other stuff, uh, it's very prone to create these gravitational waves because the bigger the mass, the more likely it's going to uh, make these waves, and that's that makes it a good candidate. So naturally, what's more exciting than when two neutron stars smack into each other and literally blow themselves to smithereens. I mean, <laughs> I wish I could exaggerate, but that's that's pretty much what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's rare for them to be on a collision course, and that's not quite true. What actually happened is they slowly started orbiting around each other. And since their orbits were slightly asymmetric, what happens in a lot of instances is they start to accelerate closer to each other. Uh-huh. And as they get closer and closer and closer, they start spinning faster and spinning faster. And this process emits more and more gravitational waves that we can pick up. And eventually they merge. They become a single star. 
And when this happens, they emit all sorts of energy, like light and different elements, and it's like crazy. It's an enormous burst of energy because these two massive things collided in space. And we were able to pick it up, and we just happened to have our detectors in the right place at the right time. Or maybe not necessarily the right place at the right time, but we happened to have our detectors looking out for this thing, and we saw it. Mm -hmm. And boom, there it is. So... Um, that's not the only thing that we've detected with these detectors. And we'll talk more about what those detectors are if yeah. you're interested. Um, but traditionally, they've been looking at black holes. Like, what's, what's denser than a black hole? Nothing is denser than a black hole. And they've been observing the similar kind of orbits of black holes around each other emitting these waves and tracking them and seeing what those are. But only recently have we seen an event like this. I mean, this is crazy, where two two neutron stars collide and make elements and Mm-hmm. And keep in mind, this thing happened like 100 million light years away. So uh, that means it happened 100 million years ago. Mm-hmm. And we're just seeing it right now. I mean, it's just, the, one, the universe is big. And two, there's an enormous amount of energy out there. The fact that we can even see that with light and with gravitational waves is, is amazing. Right. Wow. Yeah. So you mentioned that whenever the neutron stars um, uh, rotate around each other, um, and they kind of like start accelerating, getting closer mm-hmm. together. Does that same thing happen with the black holes? Like, do they also yeah, collide? Yeah, they do the same thing. And eventually, inevitably, they collide. And they, they come to this point, and it's not quite predicted because we haven't exactly proven or seen a black hole in the same sense as we've seen neutron stars. Mm-hmm. Um, since they, are, uh, they capture all light, there's, they're more hypothetical in a sense that we're not exactly sure uh, like what... It is what the mass of a black hole looks like because it captures all light and it's just kind of this black, dark singularity that is there. Um, but we do know it has a gravitational pull. We know that it affects matter and space-time and all this other stuff that conveniently pop out of Einstein's general relativity. But the idea is they also can orbit each other. They're masses. They move in space. And that interaction happens with them as well as with neutron stars. And like with neutron stars, if their orbits are asymmetrical – They'll start accelerating towards each other, and their spins will get faster. If I remember correctly, I think their orbits are on the orders of, like, one period. Like, one full rotation is, like, on the order of thousands of milliseconds or something like that. So it's really quick. They're zipping. It's like it's going down, like it's it's flushing down a toilet or something (laughs) like that. It's crazy. And then they smack into each other. And what happens there is a little more tricky. But the neutron stars thing is... Uh, a little bit more interesting, if only because we've quantified neutron stars a little bit better than we have black holes. Mm-hmm. Black holes are a little more en- en- enigmatic, if I should say. <laughs> so, yeah, right. they're in that sort of environment. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's talk a little bit about um, the devices and formulas used sure. to um, see these gravitational sure. waves. So can you talk about like maybe some sort of like equipment okay. uh, that was involved or maybe some sort of math Absolutely. models? So it, this is mostly experimental, mm-hmm. right? The way that these detectors work, um, and the biggest detector and really the only detector that gets any credits that has done all this work is called LIGO. LIGO stands for Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Now, why they put gravitational wave as one word, I'm not exactly (laughs) sure, but they get it to have that acronym there, and that's what that stands for, LIGO. Mm -hmm. Now, there's two stations. Um, There's one on the East Coast and one on the West Coast. And they, I guess they use both of them to confirm the detections of others. So if one in thing gets you know, a gravitational wave and the other one doesn't, they can cross-reference and say, hey, this happened or you must have got a blip on your screen and, 
It's nonsense. So they have two of them, and they're both in the United States of America, and then they pair what they see with other observatories, like Virgo, which is in which is a light-based observatory or a electromagnetic-based observatory that they have in Europe. Um, the idea, though, of how they work is still totally different than anything we've ever done with light, whereas we're not just measuring light. We're measuring an inference from light. So you can't just get a like a device that measures gravitational waves. You have to be kind of clever. So the way it works is what they do is they take a laser and they shoot it at uh, a, a deflector of sorts. So one part of the laser goes in one direction and another part of the laser goes in another direction. And this deflection is four kilometers long. So there's like two channels where both laser pieces shoot out and they bounce back and forth between that channel. I think it's around 280 times or something. It's 280 times before it eventually comes back and then merges again and hits a detector. And that combined those those two lasers that have been split, if nothing is happening, they should be exactly interfering perfectly. And what I mean by interfering perfectly is that there should be no difference in how they hit the detector. It should be basically the same laser that hit before. In any case, though, what happens is, is after that if, if, if it hits the detector, nothing happens. It's just two lasers that have, that have constructively interfered. They have the same wavelength, same profile, everything. But if a gravitational wave happens, and here's the kicker, one laser will get distorted while the other one doesn't. And the reason why they know this is because gravitational waves don't expand and contract in the same direction. It's kind of like if you squeeze a sponge, it pops out the end. Right? Mm-hmm. It'll pop out one end, but it'll be squished another. Well, a gravitational wave in some instances is kind of like that. It has this, we call that anisotropy. It's not uh, the same in all directions. So by having these two split lasers going in different directions, what you can do is you can measure the distortion in one while the other one is virtually unaffected and compare the two. And that's pretty much what it does. So when you have this thing like the big old neutron star explosion, it gives a big old blip. And it's actually kind of a hilarious noise that they've sort of interpolated from this. They've usually put like a, like just a baseline noise, and it makes uh, a blip if it if if it sees a inference. When something like that happens, it goes bloop, just like that, like on the radio. It's actually mm-hmm. hilarious. But that signature is that interference pattern being distorted. Um, now, this distortion is very small. Like we're talking on the order of fractions of an atom. So you have to be really precise. And this is still a big instrument. We're talking about four kilometer like channels. I mean, it's huge, right? And it's still that small. And they've gone through a lot of different mechanisms to make sure that that precision is key. So they use some of the most expensive and precise mirrors that have ever been created because they need to have that. Their laser is 164 nanometers with like an enormous amount of decimal places proceeding. It is like super precise because any deviation away from that nanometer uh, could throw off your measurement. So they have all of this engineering that's gone in to make this the most precise device that they can. And sure enough, it's working. But no one thought it was going to work mm-hmm. 10 years ago. They thought it was just a pipe dream. I mean, 40 years ago, people have been fantasizing about this kind of thing only recently. Had they gotten it to work, not only to detect stuff consistently, but uh, to kind of open this door on this this phenomenon that we see in the cosmos. So, yeah, it's all there. And both uh, inferometers, LIGOs, both LIGOs in both parts are 
essentially uh, functionally the same. So they they just double check each other, and that's mm-hmm. kind of how they know that this gravitational wave from the neutron stars happened. That's how they know what the black holes because they're double checking each other. If they get the same signature, which they did, then they know, hey, it's the same thing. It mm-hmm. must be the same incident, and that's uh, that's how we know it works. I couldn't build one myself, but you know. <laughs> Uh, it's pretty awesome that somebody else did. That is really cool. Yeah. Um, and that's the main. That's, that's the main instrument that um, is used, or is there like other types of instruments that can also be used? To so right now, waves? that is the only instrument that is used to detect gravitational waves. Okay. It's a big investment, um, and you need. I mean, you need all that stuff. Four hundred or four kilometers of distance, plus you know hundreds of different trips of that that photon that comes out of that laser and mm-hmm. many photons that follow it. And you can't just buy one of these at a store, unfortunately. You need all of that resource in order to do that. And a lot of the times these detectors are located in the middle of nowhere as a result of that too because they don't want any noise, they don't want any interference, nothing like that. So it has to be precise and it has to be well engineered and that means that it's rare. There aren't a whole lot of them out there. There's only two of them and there's only two LIGO detectors and they're both in the United States. But that's great because we have a bunch of scientists working on that stuff here. And people love collaborating on this because mm-hmm. it's so cutting edge. So uh, I ain't complaining. That's amazing. Right. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So um, you did mention that uh, since we have that in the United States. Uh, so if someone were to want to go into this, uh, into the field of astrophysics or physics, um, and want to do this kind of work with stuff like detecting gravitational waves or being on the cusp of discovery of where that mm. blurred line is of science and theology of, of trying to determine how old the universe is and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what kind of path would they need to take? Like what kind of degree qualifications, education, all that kind of stuff? Sure. So I am not personally an expert on what it takes to get into LIGO. But I am a graduate student, so I have kind of an idea on what it takes to get into certain research disciplines. Mm-hmm. So take this with a grain of salt, but <laughs> I think I have kind of an idea of what you should do. First of all, it's important to know who runs LIGO. So LIGO is run primarily by Caltech and MIT. If you can do anything, whether that be study in LIGO, be a collaborator with LIGO, go to college, whatever, study astrophysics, study astrophysics going to Caltech or MIT and getting programs specifically with the intention of working with LIGO will be your best bet. And you can start the ground, you can get on the ground running by getting into a scientific discipline like astrophysics, or theoretical physics, experimental physics. Uh, you can do math, you can do engineering. So there's a lot of different STEM that goes into that. Um, but those two programs will give you the connections that would be required to find out who's working on LIGO and who's studying this sort of thing because they're the experts. They're definitely going to know. And once you do that, chances are if you want to do a scientific-related discipline, you pretty much have to get a Ph.D. I mean, I'm sure there might be some some technicians that work on LIGO, but if you want to start conducting experiments and you want to start doing the discovery, in terms of science, a Ph.D. is pretty much a requirement. Um, Caltech and MIT are great universities, though, so if you got into them for undergrad – and you did well there, chances are you're going to do really well at any other university. And that could include collaborators or Caltech and MIT. So keep pushing for that, and that should be an opportunity for something like you. Um, Even if that's not possible, though, I'm sure that they do have temporary internships. The LIGO website has a lot of information on it, and you can definitely check this out on their website. 
Um, it's www.ligo.caltech.edu. You can definitely check it out there. And they have those opportunities there. It's probably easier if you're already at Caltech and MIT, but I'm sure that there's a possibility at least that you can find collaborators and other professors that will be willing to take you on for an internship at LIGO to do more of this work, to do more of these studies. What exactly that's going to entail now that we've seen neutron stars blowing at each other and black holes swirling around each other, I'm not exactly sure. You're going to be able to find that out. <laughs> but those opportunities can be there for sure. Um, ultimately, though, it's all up to you in networking. If you can network as hard as you can and if you push for this, I'm sure you're going to have a much better chance of getting there no matter what university you end up in. Networking is important no matter where you go, and definitely do that if you want to work on gravitational waves. The gravitational waves associated with those neutron stars, Mm -hmm. um, Nobel Prize winning work, they just handed it out. They're like, this is going to win a Nobel Prize for sure, Mm -hmm. no doubt about it. A lot of people give credit to a few physicists for it because they can only give out so many Nobel Prizes. But this is work that had many, many, many different scientists associated with it. Um, And their names are actually all on the paper. There's a paper that was published with this finding. And you can look it up if you're interested. People kind of underestimate how much of a multi-man effort this really is. Um, 30 people, hundreds of people sometimes are working on this. Uh, You may recall the particle accelerator that's... uh, over in Europe, it's the Hadron Collider. I mean, hundreds of people are working on those big devices. LIGO's not any different. And that means that there's a lot of opportunity there to study this kind of thing. This is a multi-man effort. They need lots of people with different disciplines. And now is definitely the time to start looking into this because we've confirmed it. We've gotten it off and around running. And now it's just even asking more questions than we ever thought. So definitely, 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 definitely don't feel like the person who got the Nobel Prize is the only one who did anything because they're not. There's definitely more to the picture than that. There's definitely lots of opportunity to be in that environment. That's good. Very encouraging message oh, for, for, sure. for uh, people who still want to study the stuff that has we already need more been discovered. There's absolutely more necessity to study science mm-hmm. in this country. Don't let anybody discourage you, for sure. Of course. Awesome. All right, so that wraps up our discussion about gravitational waves. To quickly summarize a few of our points, we talked about what gravitational waves were, how that relates to Einstein's theory of relativity, um, how cosmic microwave background and gravitational waves uh, can be used as a measurement for the age of the universe, but they can still be different. Um, We learned a little bit about LIGO, as well as a really awesome machine uh, that is four kilometers long. Um, And we also learned uh, what this discovery can mean for not only other physicists and astronomers, but for regular everyday people like you and me. Um, And we also learned a little bit about if you want to do this type of work, what kind of education or degree qualifications or any sort of experience you might need to do that. So, if you have a question that you want to ask us or want to join the organization, send us an email. You can reach us at askasci at utk.edu, and you can also send us questions via Twitter at our handle at askascientistut or through our Facebook page. A big thank you for Scott for uh, guesting on our second episode, and thank you for tuning in. We'll see you soon for our next episode. Thanks a lot. Bye.